Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in world peace, meditation, awakening, non-duality, hardcore dharma, high weirdness, predictive processing, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Sam Harris. Sam Harris is a renowned author, philosopher, neuroscientist, and podcast host who weighs in on issues around religion, morality, and the human mind. Harris holds a degree in philosophy from Stanford and a PhD in neuroscience from UCLA, and has practiced meditation for more than 30 years with many Tibetan, Indian, Burmese, and Western meditation teachers. Harris is particularly recognized for his exploration of meditation and non-duality, delving into their significance in understanding consciousness and the self. He's also well known in the meditation community for his book, Waking Up, and for the app of the same name. And now, without further ado, I give you a conversation with Sam Harris. Sam, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you, Michael. Nice to hear your voice. You too. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. I think I started this in about 2016, so it seems like really recently to me, but actually that's a while ago now. But if I look back at my original list of who I want to have on the show, you're sort of like at the top of the list, even at the very beginning there. So after all these years, I'm extremely pleased and happy to welcome you. Oh, nice. Yeah. So thanks for agreeing to do this. So there's a lot to talk about and there's a lot going on. Certainly many things have changed in this area of interest since 2016. It's an ever-growing, ever-transmogrifying scene, especially here in the Bay Area where I live, but also in America and the West generally. So I just want to start out by asking you, what's turning you on the most right now about all this? As someone who's just elbow deep in this world all the time, like I am, like you are, what's actually super interesting to you right now in what's going on in meditation or spirituality in general? I'm increasingly interested in coming to some understanding of the ultimate promise of the contemplative life, we can call that enlightenment, for lack of a better word, that is truly in harmony with our 21st century understanding of all that goes into living a good life. It's more than meditation. I mean, it was even more than meditation in the time of the Buddha, but there's just a lot more to it. There, there are many things that we can't quite solve individually. So I'm interested in you know, how, you know, systems and how we organize society, the incentives, economic and otherwise, can make it easier and easier or more and more difficult to be a good person. So it's more than just having an ethical code. It's more than just recognizing certain things about the mechanics of your own suffering and, and the nature of mind. It's what social media is doing to us and making it more difficult or easier depending. So I do have a fairly global set of interests here that converge on this fundamental question of what freedom is, what constitutes a good life, and what is wisdom in a 21st century secular scientific context. So that's the whole map of my interests as they relate to, to meditation. But I'm also, as I think you know, specifically interested in the difference between dualistic and non-dualistic mindfulness or methods. And I'm interested in getting people to recognize the non-dual side as early as possible. And I think it's yet to be discovered the most efficient way to do that. I'm continuing to explore in that area. And so besides presenting a wealth of teachers trying different methods, showing their best methods to the world in your app and on your podcast and so on. What's showing up right now as potentially something new, different, exciting in that field, or maybe even really old and boring, but still like this is the thing that seems to be working? Well, it's not new. This is something that I think many of us sort of stumbled upon, you know, 20, 25 years ago. But I think, you know, my background is in Vipassana first, but then I got into, you know, Dzogchen practice. My main teacher was Tukurgan Rinpoche, but you know, there were several other 
important teachers there. And, you know, I have experience with the Advaita side of, you know, various Indian teachers, and Punjaji was somebody who was also helpful to me. And it became clear to me, or at least it seemed clear and still does, that a fairly rigorous and systematic approach to Vipassana was almost certainly the best preliminary practice for Dzogchen or any non-dual approach to recognizing the nature of mind. And that's not what's taught in the Dzogchen tradition. I mean, it's not what Vajrayana Buddhism teaches. It's not taught in Mahamudra. There are analogous practices, but what you get if you go through the front door of Vajrayana and try to get access to non-dual teachings, you get a really a profusion of religious exercises and religiosity. I mean, the, the, the full iconography of Vajrayana Buddhism comes crashing down on you. And as a secular person in the 21st century who might not want to absorb a new religion, there's a lot to cut through there to find some kind of ground truth from which to get the firmware upgrade that non-dual practice ultimately promises. So I, I feel like mindfulness as taught in the West by people like Joseph Goldstein, who's a good friend, is really the perfect preliminary practice. Of course, it doesn't tend to think of itself as a preliminary practice. It considers itself a completely self-sufficient practice. But there, are, I found reasons to be dissatisfied, which we can talk about. But as a preliminary practice, it really is the only thing that keeps you honest in a moment-to-moment -moment way about the nature of what you are experiencing. And it bypasses many of the errors that I see people making, certainly in a Advaita non-dual context where it's much more about talking about the nature of reality or the nature of mind, and you just basically stay in the conversation about it until you have an epiphany. And in my experience, there's not a lot of rigorous honesty about just what one's moment-to-moment -moment experience is thereafter, you know, at every stage along the way and after one has had that recognition. So it's really a fusion of Vipassana and non-duality, whatever your favorite variant of that is, that I, I think is still kind of the gold standard from, you know, starting from wherever people happen to be and leading them into what I increasingly think of as just non-dual mindfulness. Yes. So there's a lot to dig into there that is super interesting in a big picture way. I'm totally agreeing with what you're saying. I think it's very accurate. And yet there's some questions I would have just to kind of dig in there a little bit. One would be, and of course, I've worked extensively with Joseph Goldstein's teachings, both practicing them and also just publishing them when I used to work at Sounds True. And so one of my questions is, in this case, and just let me unpack it a bit, what do you mean by mindfulness? And by that, or Vipassana, because there's like Western Vipassana, which is really uh, Ajahn Chah Vipassana, which has its own character. And then there's what I'll just loosely call Theravada Vipassana, where it's like, okay, we're looking for the three characteristics. We are trying to find these three things. And then there's the Pashana, as you'd find in Dzogchen and Mahamudra, after you dig through the, <laughs> the layers of crust that you mm -hmm. accurately describe, they are in there. And in there, you are specifically looking for emptiness. And so there's a lot of different ways to approach Vipassana. I personally work with people in any of those modes, but particularly coming from the Shinzen tradition, that's its own kind of Vipassana, but really getting into this Vipassana from the non-dual traditions, which is like, let's focus on emptiness as what we're looking for. So I'm curious how you would respond to that. Yeah. So my background was in the more classic, more Burmese style of Theravada Vipassana, which is very focused on the three characteristics, you know, as taught by somebody like Upandita Sayadaw. Yes. And the problem I have always had, apart from the very clear message of striving toward the goal that one gets in that tradition, I mean, it's a very dualistic picture of where you are and where you need to get to. It entails a fair amount of I think you know, ultimately confusion, but uh, you know a fair amount of suffering if you really are struggling to get there. The other issue I had with it is that though there are the three characteristics of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and selflessness, really the primary characteristic that one is focusing on is impermanence. And it's almost like the insight into selflessness or emptiness, depending on how one wants to think about it, 
is derivative of an insight into impermanence. You're noticing that everything is changing, you know, thoughts and moods and sensations and feelings and perceptions. Literally anything you can notice is, by its very nature of its arising, transitory. And you get steeped in that experience of ceaseless change such that you begin to sense that there can be no stable self that is carried through from one moment to the next. It's kind of a derivative insight. It's almost an extrapolation from impermanence that you get to anatta, the insight into selflessness. I'm sure there are traditional Vipassana practitioners who would want to argue against that view, but it's it was certainly my experience that that was the emphasis. And you can also have an insight into selflessness, which comes by virtue of just very intense concentration and continuity of mindfulness. Usually this would happen on retreat more than in one's daily practice, such that you know when you're hearing a sound, there's a collapse between the, the sense of there, there being a subject and object in that experience, and there's just a moment of pure hearing, right? So it's just in the heard, only the heard, or in the hearing, only the hearing kind of insight. But in my experience, that always seemed to arise spontaneously in a haphazard way. It seemed predicated on having a lot of concentration and a lot of continuity of mindfulness. And it's almost like a peak experience. I mean, though it's not necessarily one that's associated with tremendous positive affects, it's one of those moments where you think, aha, okay, that was an insight. That's the way it is. There is no subject and object. There is no self. There's just pure experience. But again, we're talking about mere moments over the course of full days of practicing, dualistically noticing, for the most part, impermanence, however effortlessly, however pleasantly, however expansively, there's still this sense that there is mindfulness as a type of attention and just kind of bare attention to experience was being aimed from some sort of locus of consciousness that is the observer, even if the observer seemed momentary and spontaneous, like spontaneously arising consciousness of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, even if it seemed to be part of the flux of experience and itself this sort of transitory process, it seemed like there were two things, right? There's consciousness and its object. It wasn't until I had experience with Dzogchen teaching where I recognized that the, the insight into selflessness, the insight into emptiness, ultimately, could be introduced directly and that it could become its own object, to use that word loosely, of mindfulness. Where like when you're no longer distracted by thought, the thing you then notice is the non-duality of open awareness and you know, Rigpa in the Dzogchen tradition. I think you asked me what mindfulness is. At the most basic level, dualistic mindfulness is just an open, non-judgmental, non-conceptual awareness of whatever you notice next, right? So just hearing sounds or feeling sensations in the body and dropping down a level past your concepts about sounds and sensations and just coming into contact with more of the raw data of experience. So rather than feel your hand you feel this changing constellation of sensations that, that are more primary, like warmth and movement and pressure or tingling, etc. And rather than hear a bird, you're actually making contact with the raw sensation of the acoustic qualities of that sound as it hinges upon awareness. But again, in the beginning, that is almost invariably a dualistic experience, and you're encouraging people to just pay careful attention to those raw data moment by moment, and again, not reacting to the pleasant by grasping at it and trying to prolong it and not reacting to the unpleasant by contracting in the face of it and trying to push it away, but just being truly open to the next experience. And then getting lost in thought is the antithesis of that, but ultimately thoughts themselves can become objects of that kind of open awareness and just notice for what they are as just appearances in consciousness that spontaneously arise, but from a non-dual perspective, ultimately what you're recognizing or becoming mindful of moment to moment is just that there's no center to any of that. You're not on the edge of experience looking in, and you're not in the center of experience uh, appropriating it from a point of view in the head as a subject. 
There's just experience. And that insight, there are many different ways to describe it, but one way to describe it is in the Buddhist terminology as emptiness. Most importantly, it's empty of a separate subject in that moment. I mean, it's, it's empty of many other things if you want to analyze its constituents. But the crucial insight from my point of view is to have the feeling of me, the meditator, paying attention drop away and just have the openness of what remains. Yes. And so in this way of describing it, it sounds like you're not necessarily looking for three characteristics, or if you are, you're mainly looking for the, let's say, centerlessness or non-self type experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so for you, that's maybe the most practical introduction people could have to get ready, so to speak, for deeper non-dual practice. But the actual recognition of it then just becomes the direct enjoyment of the goal, right? Like you now no longer have a goal in your practice when you can simply notice that there's no center to experience. One way to get at the difference between dualistic and non-dualistic mindfulness is if you ask the question in this moment, how do you know that you're not enlightened, right? How do you know that you're not already an arhant or the Buddha, right? Well, if you're practicing dualistically, you really do have an answer to that question. I mean, you notice the next crappy thing that arises that doesn't feel like enlightenment. And you notice that the ongoing struggle to pay attention or to get somewhere, to have your experience transfigured by concentration or you know something that you expect to happen when you're meditating, you're expecting some change at the level of experience to signal that you've made progress. And so, you know, if you're practicing dualistically and all you can do is notice impermanence and otherwise notice just the ordinariness of your experience, well, then when I ask you, well, how do you know you're not enlightened? You can honestly say, well, I mean, just a moment ago, I was lost in thought and now all I notice is a pain in my shoulder, right? So what good is that, right? You're stuck as a meditator with a project that suggests in fairly vivid terms that there's somewhere better that you need to get to. And it's only through this heroic effort of bearing down upon the present moment for a vast amount of time that you're likely to get anywhere worth going. And again, there are certain teachings that explicitly encourage that view. I mean, Upandita was certainly a teacher of that sort, where it was perfectly apparent to him that you weren't enlightened and that you had to really grind away with your mindfulness to make any sort of progress. And that's a self-confirming view of the present moment, I would say. And you know, I practiced with the consequences of that for quite some time. From the non-dual perspective, once you can actually be mindful of selflessness or emptiness directly, non-duality directly, centerlessness, then if you ask the question, well, how do you know in this moment that you're not enlightened? There's actually nothing to find. Right? There is no experiential answer to that question which affirms its legitimacy, right? I mean, what you find is the complete absence of anyone who could be unenlightened, and what remains is just the totality of experience. And from that point of view, any experience is as good as any other, really, to reveal the centerlessness of an inherent clarity and openness of consciousness, Right? There's just consciousness and its contents, whatever they happen to be, and there's no one to appropriate it in a moment of clear mindfulness, in non-dual mindfulness. Yeah, I want to attempt to clarify something there and see about your thinking on it. To me, there's a further non-duality necessary there to really come into the full vision of Rigpa or deep non-duality, which is what I would loosely describe selflessness as being the contents of awareness are not separate. And so that's the kind of non-duality that's usually talked about when people talk about selflessness or non-self or usually talked about that way in Advaita and so on. But it seems to me there's a deeper realization that is required, which is that awareness and its contents are not separate. In the first formulation, when you say the contents of consciousness are not separate, not separate from what? Each other, mm -hmm. you know, within consciousness or awareness, there's 
feelings of self happening. There's experiences of the world happening. And our fundamental error, let's say, of average consciousness is to think that those things are separate. But within the view of consciousness itself, they're not separate. There's no entity over here having an experience of another thing over there. And so there's a kind of clear insight mm. that these things that we thought were separate are not. However, in many traditions, awareness itself is then given a kind of privileged position, mm -hmm. either as the ultimate transcendent thing or even deified or made into God. And so there's a real common yeah. thing there where we get a sort of pure philosophy of pure transcendence, right? Right. It's all about just awareness itself. And everything else is either a dream or even more perniciously somehow blocking you blocking awareness as pure vision or something. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me a further thing is required, which is then also noticing that this awareness is itself not different from its contents. Those things are non-separate, I should say. Yeah, I'm definitely collapsing those two insights into one. I guess the caveat would be that I do think there are experiences of pure awareness divorced of content, right? So in that sense, awareness can be separate from sensory experience, but sensory experience is not separate from awareness. It's just an expression of awareness. So it's it's like the analogy that's often given in Dzogchen is to a mirror. You know, the things you see in the mirror are not separate from the luminosity, leaving aside the actual objects in the world that are being reflected that make this a bad analogy. If you just take the mirror and its appearances in and of themselves, what you see there is not separate from the luminosity or the reflective property of the mirror. And I would say the same about consciousness, that you know, though there might be a world out there, and almost certainly there is some sort of world beyond the world that we experience, our experience as such is simply, and including the world you see with your open eyes, it is a vision that is inseparable from what we're calling consciousness or awareness. And there's uh, freedom to be found in that because so much of our suffering is based on the illusion that things are otherwise, that there's a self, invariably a, a fairly embattled self in the middle of experience. And it's shoring up that vulnerable self is the project to which more or less all of our life energy is put. So the insight into selflessness really does directly relieve the contractedness and the goal orientation that is otherwise the default of more or less any experience, however pleasant. I mean, we're just you know, busily gratifying desires and avoiding discomfort unless we're recognizing the nature of this prior openness. I would add one other piece to that distinction you made, which is that it's also not just oneness either. I mean, the reason why I, I like the language of Buddhism a little bit more than the language of Advaita, I don't tend to talk about a you know a capital S self, is that there's a kind of a reification there that when you lose the sense of separateness, what many people imagine is that you gain this sense of unity and totality and a more grandiose somethingness. And while I would say that those experiences are there to be had, I mean, you can definitely have a kind of fusion experience or a unity experience, which really feels like a bigger something, like you can sort of grab more mind in some ways. I think the more fundamental insight is in the not two-ness, the non-duality, but also the not oneness. And because, I mean, there is still the multiplicity of appearances. I mean, you can distinguish between sights and sounds, say. You don't get this fusion of everything. Discrimination is still possible even in a context without a center. And so it's more of a paradoxical openness and non-two-ness, which is why the Buddhist concept of emptiness seems to be as badly as it translates into English and as easily as it misleads people who don't like the sound of the concept, I think it's probably a better concept than the concept of unity. Total agreement. Um, if we get into the oneness in a strong way, then it's like a gray mush scenario, right? Everything is just all difference and all beauty and multiplicity and exquisiteness of the world just is somehow erased in this ultimate reductive move. Furthermore, you know, doesn't 
really get us very much. Whereas, again, instead of kind of disappearing into this transcendent mode of what I would call first level non-duality, the whole point of including the fact that awareness and its contents are non-separate is that it brings us back into the beauty and multiplicity of the world, right? And all its verdant creativity, right? We're suddenly delivered back into the imminent realm and able to interact and have lives and jobs and families and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And see that all as part of spirituality or the sacred or whatever, and not somehow just this lesser thing than my awareness only. To me, it's an incredibly important thing to be clear about because there can be a moment where we've discovered non-selfness and the power of consciousness or the power of awareness and just how beautiful that is and exquisite and also kind of like all-encompassing. And so many of the traditions right at that critical moment are going to tell us, yes, the world is just blocking you from this and somehow getting in the way. Mm. And all your experience, you want to just reshape your life so that you can just feel this and sort of block everything out. And obviously what's so, in my mind, crucial and superior, <laughs> it definitely is a hierarchy in Buddhism in general, but particularly Mahamudra and Dzogchen, and also quite obviously in Nandul Shaiva Tantra, they're very clear about the status of the whole world as basically the ornament or the expression of this consciousness, and that it's not somehow in the way. Yeah, although I guess one could argue that one's fascination with anything other than the nature of mind is in the way. If you look at the project of stabilizing this insight, what's the difference between me and the Buddha? Well, the difference is I'm not stable in this insight. Yes. Right? I spend a fair amount of time over the course of my day not clearly recognizing what we're talking about and being lost in thought. And the reason for that is I'm interested in other things, things that really have nothing to do with the project of stabilizing this insight. And, you know, there's a word for that in Buddhism and Hinduism. It's samsara, right? It's the problem that I was trying to overcome dualistically by practicing mindfulness in the first place. There's a line, I think it's in the Astravakra Gita. There's this admonition to desire nothing but your own awareness. This would seem to suggest the first problem you just pointed out, that the primacy of awareness can be misleading and lead to a lack of recognition of the second version of non-duality you described. But when I think about that advice and what it would mean to take it, to desire nothing but my own awareness, well, that would be a kind of algorithm for stabilizing this thing we're talking about, not getting distracted ever again until there's no possibility of being distracted, assuming one can actually take the practice to that level of real stability. And I have no reason to think one can't. I just have a reason to think that I haven't based on what I was doing with my attention just moments ago, right? So when I look at my practice, it's interesting to see what non-duality means it's easy to see how you can lose your commitment to stabilizing this insight by just recognizing that there really is nothing lost or gained. If I can always recognize emptiness in this moment, and my practice is non-dual to the point where I don't even care about the quality of experience, right? So that any contents of consciousness is good enough, right? I'm not looking for something meditative. I don't have to be blissed out. I can be checking email and then recognize that there's no center to that experience. That is true, and that's a very useful insight in that it completely undercuts the logic by which one would seek enlightenment or seek freedom or seek anything in a problematic way. But it can also unplug you from the imperative to actually stabilize the practice. Right. What you have in that case is just your tendency to want to recognize or to be interested in other things. And then you have your life circumstance, which may or may not function as a kind of mindfulness alarm. And I find that life is generally good enough that it's easy to go to sleep in the midst of fairly pleasant, you know, non-contracted experience. And it's only when something 
begins to produce some suffering for me that a kind of a mindfulness alarm goes off. And I realize, okay, well, okay, now I either have to recognize or I will be suffering pointlessly. And it's not to say I don't recognize when things are nice, too, but the thing that really functions as a goad to recognition is some kind of contraction, some sense that there's a problem. You know, I've gotten impatient, I've gotten angry, I've gotten, you know, something in the world has bumped into me and gotten my attention. And when you think about what it would take, the other way to to talk about this, I recently did MDMA again after having not taken it for, you know, more than 30 years. And I was asking myself at every point along the way, how is this improving consciousness, if it is at all? What's better about this? Because if you're dualistically fixated on the quality of consciousness, the energy of your body, the type of appearances that are noticeable in your mind, there's a lot that's better. If you want to be blissed out, if you want to be overwhelmed by feelings of love and gratitude, well, I'm getting much more of that on MDMA than I am checking my email. And yet the insight into non-duality does equalize the experiences in a way. When I'm cutting through into emptiness at the peak of the MDMA experience, there really is just, you know, centerless consciousness and the energy has changed, but it's not different from this moment. But there is one difference which strikes me as interesting, which is that if my experience had more and more that quality that I experience on MDMA, it would be very easy to respond to the injunction, desire nothing but your own awareness. It would be overwhelmingly easy because there is nothing else, certainly not much else to desire given that constellation of changes in one's physiology and one's experience, right? It's like it's during that hour, I was not inclined to turn on Netflix or you know go shopping or check my email or do anything else. If someone at that moment says, really, the way to fulfill this whole project now that you've got non-duality in hand is to desire nothing but your own awareness. During the MDMA flash, that is just an instantly recognizably sane use of one's attention, more or less for the rest of one's life, right? So that does suggest a kind of tipping over into something like the monastic project. It's not to say there are things you wouldn't want to maintain about an ordinary life even from that place, but it would cut through many other priorities. And so this is just a long way of saying that there's something to, in my view, the dualistic recognition that the character of experience does have a certain kind of consequence, which is to say that if I got up every morning feeling that way, I might spend, I almost certainly would spend much more time just basking in the suchness of the nature of mind, right? And not finding reason to do many other things. You'd look much more like Ramana Maharshi in how you spent your time if that's how consciousness was tasting most of the time. And, you know, that's kind of a koan that I haven't solved for myself, but I do see the implication of that. Like, if I really want to stabilize this thing, not just for my own benefit, but for the benefit of others, there's something about having the sail on your boat, receiving the full wind of Ananda, right? It puts the Ananda back into Satchit Ananda, really. And there's a consequence to having it, I would say. Very much so. Thank you for that. And I feel like there's so much there to kind of go into. And the one place I want to press down just a little bit and see what you have to say about it is the very central non-dual insight that the contents of experience is not separate from experience itself. The contents of experience is not separate from awareness or consciousness. And therefore, any experience is still bathed in or at least potentially saturated with this Satchitananda, this radiant bliss of awareness, no matter how disgusting and shitty and awful the experience is in a relative way. Now, of course, I'm sure as much as you are maybe like hundreds of times worse for a lot longer, that way of talking just really, I found frustrating and upsetting and enraging and unbearable mindfuck paradox thing. Like, that may be true, but that's so different from my experience that it's just upsetting. Mm. And furthermore, how you're telling me to notice that is 
not working. So, I mean, I get that there's a new pie quality here where until one is ready to notice that stuff, it's just almost not even helpful to hear it. You right. need the Vipassana background or other preliminary backgrounds. You need to have selflessness at least partially available. There's other things to really begin to notice that. For me, the first time I really got a deep sense of this was, and I notice other people having this be a watershed kind of moment too, or like a a moment where they really notice it for the first time is when you get really sick. For me, it was food poisoning and just how Mm. miserable that is in every dimension of human experience. Just the nausea and you can't sleep and you're cold and you're shivering and it's as miserable as you can be as a person, or at least it's pretty miserable. And somewhere in there in one's journey, or at least for me, it was after decades, I just noticed that without even trying, this wasn't a mindfulness bell or a mindfulness pointer or alarm, as you put it. I was just sick. But I noticed I wasn't having a bad time. Yeah. And that it was just fine. This is the problem with a word like Ananda. I mean, in no human dimension could you call that bliss you know, in the regular way of talking about emotions or whatever. It just doesn't register. Even emotionally, it was miserable. And yet the core of the experience was just fine and not neutral, just Mm. fine, but like actually blissful. Yeah, well, that really is kind of the tantric description of this, which is interesting and I think phenomenologically true, is that when you can recognize everything as just an appearance in and as awareness, right? Certainly from the position of there being no center, then there's just the raw energy of appearance. And when that is nausea, it is just raw energy in the same way that anything you know, classically pleasurable is raw energy. And the energy itself has a kind of blissful character, again, experienced from the point of view of just a this sort of kind of radical openness and non-grasping, non-contraction around whatever happens to be appearing. You know, I remember an early experience of this I had when I was just practicing Dzogchen for the first time. I I was in Nepal, and I had just gotten teachings from Tukurgan and had just kind of resolved them for myself and was fairly confident that I knew what I was paying attention to. I got sick. I think I've told the story somewhere in Waking Up, or I think I tell the story, but I was on a bus, and they literally had to stop the bus because I had to get off to throw up. And as I leap off the bus, and I'm throwing up in a gutter in Kathmandu. But uh, unfortunately, I was right in front of a chai shop, so I was ruining the afternoon of you know half a dozen people who were sitting there enjoying their tea, watching this American come you know lurching in front of them and you know barfing. But I had the presence of mind in that moment to ask myself, okay, is the insight into freedom? available right now? I mean, is this a problem? Can you transcend this experience? Are you waiting for this to be over? Is the insight into emptiness just as available now or any less available now than it was when you're sitting there, you know, looking into Tukorgan's eyes being as meditative as you can be? And the truth is that there was no difference, right? It was just as clear in that moment. And that's the kind of test that I would recommend that anyone who thinks they're practicing in a non-dual way, you know, run on themselves. When you're in extremis in some way, it's important to ask yourself, okay, is wisdom available right now? Not five minutes from now when I've gotten a hold of myself or, or cleaned up this mess. Not, you know, once the pain goes away, but right now. And if it's not, it's not, right? Like, it's important to be honest with yourself. But Whatever's true there, in my view, matters, right? If it's not available, you don't even know what I'm talking about, and there's nothing worse than nausea, and yeah, there's no way to be free until you get rid of the nausea, and then we can talk about meditating. Well, then that's one place to be in your practice, but that's not good enough, really. What we all want, and I think are right to want, is a mode of practice such that it is available even when all of the sensory channels are telling you that everything is wrong. I'm also not saying there aren't problems that are worth solving by some other method than just cutting through to non-duality. I mean, obviously, if you're throwing up, you know, call the doctor and figure out what's wrong with you. You can do all of those things, too. But the question is, can you drop your problem in this moment if only for a moment, 
whatever is happening. And in my view, that is the test of one's practice. And, you know, it will always be the test of one's practice. Very much so. And it leads to something I think is both koan-like and, let's say, subtle and difficult and yet really important here. So there's a kind of, we'll just call it bliss, freedom, but not neutrality, right? It's definitely a joyous freedom that's available in any sort of experience. And that's because of the availability of reflecting or however we want to put it on emptiness or one's awareness right there in that moment. There it is. I don't mean thinking about it, of course. So that's like physical discomfort. But what about even the fact that it's there even when we're distracted from it or even when we are having a big emotional freak out or whatever? It's always there. Just like it might be appropriate to call the doctor when we're sick, it might be appropriate to be angry right now or whatever. And yet that kind of bliss, that kind of freedom never went away. And again, I used to resist this sort of talk so much because it's like, well, be honest with yourself. Were you experiencing it? It, As you say, that's very important. Hmm. And yet, as a later pointing out instruction, it starts to lead someplace very interesting and not a realm of lying to yourself or bypassing or something. But actually, to me, this starts to get at the key to long-term stabilization is noticing that even in the distraction, there's non-distraction. Even in the reaction, there's non-reaction. Like the stability is always there. And so it's almost like a change of view more than a practice. And again, it's so easy to hear this as a kind of fooling yourself. But I will just say that to me, there's a deep access to the continuity of consciousness available in the direction of that, I'll call it koan. Yeah, well, I think the way I tend to think about that and experience it is from the other side of where I would say that the evidence for your unenlightenment is always in the past. It's always retrospective. It's always, oh, that thing that happened a moment ago You know, that was coming out of distraction, that was coming out of dualistic fixation, that was coming out of something other than just recognizing. The look on my face a moment ago, the look may still be the look on my face now that I'm noticing it. It'll take a second to dissipate, but that whole thing arose based on my not recognizing, but now I recognize, right? So one's bondage is always behind one. Your chains are always something that you have already slipped in in the moment of noticing them. But I don't feel much of a disposition to keep score of those past moments as evidence, you know, to build a case against my own Buddhahood. But my wife does, you know, like my wife will notice those. You know, she has a picture of my bondage that is, you know, probably quite humbling to consider because she has the outside view of me and uh, how I show up in the world. And, you know, presumably if we could get her testimony here, It's less than fully inspiring of the completion of the project. The wheel of the Dharma has not turned its last revolution in my case. And the question is what to make of that, right? And so there's a dualistic response to that, which is, well, I should just be a much better yogi if I really cared about her and I cared about myself and I cared about the world. I would spend much more time practicing and I would um, get this project, you know, better in hand and finish it, right? And yet... In this moment, I can't actually discover that it's not finished, right, when I pay attention, right? So the non-dual punchline is always kind of interrupting the dualistic project. That's just another name for mindfulness. Ultimately, in my case, I just keep practicing. But again, coming back to the MDMA insight or pseudo-insight, I do worry that it's possible to just kind of coast in a way that's not as wise as it might be, right? I mean, like, I know what Tukurgan's advice would be to me. You know, he's the one who taught me, you know, everything I know about non-duality, right? And he taught it in the clearest way I ever encountered, despite all the other great teachers I studied with. And I saw how he lived. I mean, basically, he lived like someone who didn't desire much more than his own awareness, Right? He spent a tremendous amount of time on formal retreat, and even when he was not on retreat, he spent a lot of time just sitting in his little room looking at the sky. So the question is, on some level, I'm rejecting his advice by having a more ordinary life, right? And 
I'm of two minds about that, but the important thing is I'm of two minds about it, right? There might be a consequence to having only one mind about it, which is the more traditional, you know, there's nothing better than practice sort of mind. But again, that has all kinds of consequences, which I'm apparently not currently willing to live with. By temperament now, I tend not to view this as a problem because everything seems quite good at the moment. But I also know that I'm vulnerable to a few illusions here, which is that life is really nice right now, and virtually everything that makes it nice is temporary, right? You know, I'm, I'm healthy enough. I'm wealthy enough. I'm surrounded by people I love. They're healthy enough. For the most part, the bad thing or the many bad things that are guaranteed to happen very directly to me and to the people I love haven't, for the most part, happened yet. There are bad things that have happened. People close to me have died, but, you know, not recently. So I think somewhere in, in Tibetan teachings, there's this image of a a yogi who's not making nearly the, the efforts he should, just kind of lying in a relaxed way on top of a haystack, enjoying the beam of sunlight that happens to be falling on him. And all the while, there's some great flood, unbeknownst to him, eroding the foundation of the haystack he's lying on, and he's soon to be washed away. And I recognize that's the world in which we live, right? There is a flood coming, and the, the time to have a practice that is truly stable, that makes you good company for everyone around you and good company for yourself in the midst of an emergency, the time to have achieved that practice is not in the middle of the emergency. It's before you need it, not when you need it. So, as you can hear, I'm thinking about the implications of just staying on cruise control, as I seem to be, and not really taking the advice to practice more urgently that, that I know someone like Tulgurgan would give me at this point. Well, you've brought up several times here psychedelic experience, and I'm sure Tulku Urgan would not approve of that, I assume. I don't know. I never spoke with him about it. I'm not sure if anyone had, so I don't know. But but I did have an experience with Poonjaji that was quite funny because Poonjaji, we were studying with him. It was a very small group. This is before he was discovered by a much wider circle of people. So there were probably just 10 of us there at that, that point. And um, we asked him if we could take LSD and come back and have satsang with him. And he said, oh, yeah, if you took LSD, it would be much easier to just move you guys into you know, the fully enlightened state. So yeah, just you know, by all means. And so we came back the next day, or it was, yeah, it was probably literally the next day, having dropped acid. But it took however long it took to fully kick in. And like just as we were peaking, you know, like satsang was over, and he was telling us to, you know, he had to go to the dentist or whatever he had to do. This was a Friday, and we were telling him, you know, but uh, Papaji, like, there's just one more question here. And he said, well, well, come back Monday. The statement, come back Monday, was just like the cruelest joke played by a, an indifferent universe at that point. It's like, come back Monday. Like, all there was was the, the yawning void of the eternal present at that moment. And the idea that the most enlightened person we'd ever met was telling us to come back Monday just, you know, shattered our minds. But in any case, uh, there was at least one adept who was approving of psychedelics at that point. Yeah. So currently, obviously, psychedelics are this a huge renaissance and for me in the past, but certainly was an enormous part of my path, just gobbling lots and lots of psychedelics with often some intention. But I'm curious, I think we both know the obvious pitfalls and the promise there. Mm. What do you think about both the kind of current resurgence of that and how it looks, how it's manifesting, but also its potential interweaving with what our culture now knows about meditation practice, about the brain, about awakening, about what we've learned about the potential for freedom in selflessness and so on? Is this a direction that will bear fruit? Yeah, well, I'm somewhat conflicted about it. I mean, I'm very hopeful that it will alleviate a, a fair amount of suffering for people. I think the research is, is suggestive that there's a, a lot of promise there with the various compounds for various maladies. I mean, I think MDMA in particular, which is not classically a psychedelic, holds a lot of promise for you know, psychological healing, but also psilocybin and LSD and perhaps there are hundreds of other compounds in the end that could hold a lot of promise for us. But I worry that we could 
if we're not careful, recapitulate some of the errors of the 60s in just the, the indiscriminate use of these compounds more recreationally. I think there are many people who shouldn't take any of the classic psychedelics, say, because they're prone to psychopathy and you know the kind of triggering event. It's not an accident that drugs like LSD and psilocybin were originally considered to mimic psychopathy because they really do have the capacity to fragment one's sense of self in a way that's not healthy. So there are caveats there in recommending the use of these drugs. But, you know, it would be dishonest for me to not acknowledge that they appeared to be indispensable for me, at least in the beginning, in in just convincing me that there was this deeper project of looking turning the mind upon itself and looking for something of interest there. You know, the idea that introspection could bear any fruit at all was something that I think I was by default more or less just unavailable to. I don't know what would have happened if someone had urged me to meditate or, you know, taught me how to meditate prior to my taking MDMA the first time. But I think with a fairly high confidence that I would have just bounced off the whole project. As far as the way in which psychedelics can be really important for the meditative journey, there's, there's definitely a possible importance for many people at the start. I mean, just, just to convince people that there is an inner landscape of mind that's worth exploring. I mean, I think there are just some people who are just going to be hard-headed enough, and I, I think I was probably one of them, such that there's no other way they're going to come to that that initial insight that has them pointing attention within. And beyond that, I think there's some utility. I think it was useful for me to take MDMA and psilocybin after a hiatus of more than 25 years in the case of psilocybin and more than 30 years in the case of MDMA. But I think there's also something misleading about the psychedelic experience. And I think it can convince people that spiritual life is a matter, almost by definition, of having peak experiences, of radically changing the character of experience. You're swapping the ordinary contents of consciousness for you know, truly extraordinary contents. And that just getting more and more of that is the path. And I think that's obviously wrong, right? It sets up this kind of you know goal orientation and striving and attachment and But all of those states of mind are, by their very nature, impermanent, right? The thing we're looking for is the thing that is not impermanent, the thing that is always available, whatever the character of experience. And so when I see the people who have focused on psychedelics, more or less to the exclusion of every other method, I mean, occasionally I see someone who I admire a lot, and there's a lot of interest there. I mean, I'm thinking of somebody like Terrence McKenna, right? Like, I'm definitely a fan of his talks and books. But it seems to me that he actually didn't really understand much of what you and I have been talking about for the last hour. He located the goal in some other place. I met him once very briefly, but I never got to know him. You know, for him, it was all about having visionary experience, right? He was attached to a very specific slice of the bandwidth of the psychedelic experience, and it was all about visual changes in experience, as far as I can tell. So he loved psilocybin and DMT above all. It's certainly interesting. It says a lot about the possibilities of experience, and having those experiences can be humbling and beautiful and gratifying and inspiring, etc. But all of that is kind of orthogonal to the project you and I have been describing, which is this fundamental insight into the nature of consciousness that reveals the illusoriness of the separate self, right? And a direct recognition of how that is liberating of, if not all suffering, most suffering, right? I don't know what its limits are, but in terms of a release valve for psychological suffering, its utility there is is very direct. And its connections to, to living an ethical life, you know, perhaps not as direct as we might hope, but certainly if you do the work to actually think about ethics, there are you know, all kinds of points of contact between you know, self-transcendence and moral goodness and you know, integrity. The psychedelic experience, you know, as advertised by someone like Terence, is mapping a very different place, right? It doesn't have a necessarily direct connection to ethics, and it doesn't even have a direct connection 
necessarily to the transcendence of subject-object dualism. In most cases, you can have a sense of subject intact while you enjoy the, you know, the phantasmagoria of a peak, you know, psilocybin flash, right? You know, the heroic dose of psilocybin. I mean, it's not to say that your sense of separateness won't be overwhelmed at some point. In most cases, it certainly won't be overwhelmed in a way where you recognize that this is the way consciousness always already is, right? Unless you already have that insight before you take the drugs. So I think psychedelics, their pitfalls aside, they might be indispensable for some people to convince them to look into any of what we've been talking about here and to begin any sort of practice. But once that process starts, their interest is somewhat orthogonal to the actual path of recognizing and stabilizing an insight into emptiness. Yeah, I strongly agree that for most people in the West, they are the inciting incident. You know, <laughs> like if you're going to be interested in spiritual topics of this sort, meditation, the consciousness, the mind, all of that, almost certainly you got there by taking some acid or something. It's there in almost everyone I talk to. It's kind of the part of the central Western biography yeah. of spiritual biography at this point. And so, yes, they're incredibly powerful. And with all the caveats you said, there's so many people who just, just literally chemically shouldn't, you know, biologically should never take it and so on. But I would say that however transient, however non-stable, I had the experience of getting a clear insight into selflessness mm. that basically never went away. Yeah. You know, it's like that thing that was revealed stayed revealed. Which compound had you taken? Quite a large dose of LSD. Mm -hmm. And of course, with a background in meditation and so on. So it wasn't just, I don't know if there's the possibility of an unscripted experience, but it wasn't unscripted. But, you know, that's like 1986. Of course, it's developed since then. But that fundamental freedom of selflessness was there. And it never went away, even if it wasn't stable, of course. Well, yeah, I don't discount that possibility. I mean, there are people who have a fundamental insight while on psychedelics that they can then recognize while off. In my experience, that's not the usual case. It's not the usual thing. And you need, at least in my case, in the case of the people I've seen like this, you have to have a pretty strong meditation practice after that to do anything with it, so to speak. Yeah. And I have found that there's kind of an enduring consequence to having taken MDMA and psilocybin again after all these years, because there is something about what we just spoke about. You know, there's the Ananda component of consciousness is more salient to me now than it was just because I kind of blew out those pipes so fully in this fairly recent MDMA experience, right? I mean, it's not surprising neurologically. I mean, I think there is some neuroplasticity that accounts for this, but it's like an athletic ability. It's like you learn a new move athletically and by virtue of visualizing it and rehearsing it, the psychedelic experience allows you to rehearse this thing, not for, you know, five minutes a day for years, but strangely, you manage to rehearse this thing for like 10,000 hours over the course of one day, right? Like, like you just kind of groove your golf swing to the point where you really know what it feels like. And then you wake up the next day and you've magically gotten just at the level of your physiology, just all kinds of practice hours that seem impossible to have gotten in some ordinary way. So as far as potentiating the energetics of that insight, it's not nothing, right? So there is a kind of a hangover effect from it. But I would say that there's a negative hangover from a negative experience. I mean, the reason why I stopped doing psychedelics back in the day, and at that point I had been taking acid. I haven't taken acid as much as, you know, many real veterans have. Once I discovered it, I was taking it once a month and doing lots of, you know, meditation and meditation retreats. But it became a kind of almost, you know, spin of the roulette wheel, where my first, let's say, 10 trips were just uniformly blissful and just like a pure advertisement for, you know, spiritual potential. Whereas the subsequent few trips I took after that, I had you know, like equally bad experiences, right? Just a harrowing plunge into psychopathology. 
It really is a simulacrum of madness. However good any further trip would have been, you know, as I say somewhere, the door to hell was always ajar, right? Like it could have been a good trip on balance, but there were moments of it where I realized, okay, this could go spectacularly wrong too. And so it just seemed like you know, I was playing Russian roulette on some level. So I stopped, and I stopped because when I had a bad trip, I mean, the couple of times where I had a you know, very bad trip, there was a hangover for a very long time where I felt like, you know, for months I was less sane, you know, less happy, less healthy neurologically. But the converse is true. I mean, when I had good trips, there was a very positive hangover. It just feels like... This is really not a prescription for anything because you really can't control set and setting and their niceties notwithstanding. You really can't control what trip you have, though it does seem, in my view, much harder to have a bad trip on MDMA than any other proper psychedelics. But there is just this long neurological consequence to having an experience that intense, you know, positive or negative. Sam, time-wise, I have to bring this conversation to a close, even though there's like so much I'd like to ask. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Great to finally meet you, Michael. Yeah, very good to meet you too. All right, have a great one. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com signup, 
or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R.com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. Listening.